Isaac and Rosa Blum are uh, 94 and 93 years old. They um, have been uh, together for 75 years, and um, they are married, and they're an intriguing couple. Um, uh, Once they made it through the first five years of marriage, the last 70 have been a cakewalk. Rosa says, he's not very romantic, but his thoughtfulness reveals itself in little gifts and almost begrudging acts of tenderness. Rosa goes on to say, we have different point of view, but somehow we've survived, she said. What keeps us together are the quarrels. That's the cement of a marriage. She goes on again, I love him in spite of all of his defects. It's not so easy, but I wouldn't change him for somebody else. September 18th, 1851 was the first wedding announcement that was posted in the New York Times. And since that time, there's been a a continued progression of people who have announced their intentions to get married. There's also been some reporting on marriages and weddings that have been less than stellar. In 1855, there was an intriguing report. It seems as though someone had slipped something into the custard that a great many number of folks had consumed at the wedding. It was arsenic. (laughs) Yeah, no doubt. Everyone that took it um, was in a bad situation, and they believed that the bride herself would not survive. I didn't check to see if there was a follow-up article. Again, 1855. You think we have a polemical culture right now? Just go back a couple hundred years. Then in... uh, 1859, there was a bit of a crazy bit of business going on. It involved an 18-year-old woman. Um, Her name is uh, Frances Bartlett. She was courted by a 55-year-old Cuban, 18 to 55, Senor Don Esteban Santa Cruz de Ovidio, okay? He lavished presents on her, so much so that a poem was written about the marriage of the season. i got to find it here. Where's the poem? It's on page four. It was written by a rascal entitled, named Edmund Clarence Stedman. I do not wish to disparage, but every kiss has a price for its bliss. In the modern code of marriage, and the compact suite is not complete till the high contracting parties meet before the altar of mammon. Now, the bride's father, who is actually a Navy veteran, challenged the writer of said poem, and this writer of said poem said, well, if you're going to challenge me, then I demand my satisfaction in a duel, whereupon the retired Navy guy backed away from the situation, deciding perhaps the poem wasn't that bad and not worth the spilling of blood. What was the last wedding that you went to? And do you have a wedding coming up in your funeral? Future funeral. <laughs> that was totally, that was like, so, okay, you got to be careful. These are not approved. To th- That's not for you. No, for your sister. You got to give it to your sister, man. Come on. Okay, so, so when was the last wedding? Okay, some advice on weddings, okay? Now, now, not the least of which, would you? No. Really? There you go, Sweet. It's a memory of the day. Come on. I've never, I've had people give gifts back, but I've never said it to anyone say, no, I don't want it. Don't want a Barbie doll. Okay, so last wedding that you were at or a wedding that you have, these are not approved to be thrown. Um, Tanya did not approve them. They're not wrapped in anything. So you just, I, well, you got it. Okay, so some advice if you have a wedding coming up. And it's really simple. It's easy stuff. If you're a groom, don't be a groomzilla. If you're a bride, don't be a bridezilla. 
And if you're a mother-in-law, don't be a mother of the bridezilla. And, and just a little helpful advice, don't ever staff the pastor. But that's another thing entirely. So there's this story, right, that goes on and on and on, and it's about this grand and glorious wedding. Our text today is found in Revelation chapter 19, verse 6. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. This trumpet voluntary, this hallelujah, this rushing water, this big sound, this thunderous exclamation. And then the refrain, the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Now, Beale points out that if we really, really look at that phrase, it would be best translated, Lord God Almighty has begun to reign. Now, we scratch our heads a little bit on that because we would affirm that God is overall, that, that God is somehow not surprised by life, that God is somehow not capable of doing things. But here, the language seems to indicate that God has begun to reign. This is a new expression for revelation, but not a new theological truth. Beale, in arguing for this, looks at Babylon's defeat, a new age, a new reality. We have the end game of evil in the rearview mirror. And all forces that are opposed to God within the next chapter will be vanquished. I don't think the author, John, is attempting to say that God doesn't reign. I think he is trying to bring our attention to a very important concept. We often look at our lives and wonder why. We often look at our world and wonder, why does there seem to be so much evil? And I think what John draws our attention to is this reality, this understanding, that throughout time, since shortly after creation, there has been this war, this battle that has waged on between God and the forces of evil. And we often look for the why as to why bad things happen, and frequently the why bad things happen is expressed in this battlefield motif, this real battle in which we are players, a battle that takes place inside of us without question, a battle that we see on display most days of the week in the world, yes, and a battle that in the future concludes. 
a battle that also has an important underlying value. Maybe value is too strong of a word. Maybe outcome would be a better word. A battle that has an important underlying outcome. The Bible affirms time and time again that through our experience of life and through our experience of this world, we can either move closer to God or further away from God. And that for the follower of Jesus Christ, the goal is to move closer and to be like Christ, to learn from Christ, to be a disciple of Christ. And that in our experience of life, we have the opportunity, if you will, to strengthen our resolve, to strengthen our ability to respond because we have a relationship with Jesus Christ in a way that Christ would respond. When we experience life, even when we experience some of the evil that life has, there is an underlying purpose that cannot be missed. Suffering serves a purpose. Now, this is a hard thing for us to wrap our heads around, right? Because we don't like to suffer. In fact, we do whatever we can to not suffer, okay? If we're cold at night, we put an extra blanket on, okay? And that's how we think, right? I don't want to be cold. I don't want to suffer from being cold, so I'll put an extra blanket on so I'm not cold. I'll shut the window. I'll turn up the heat, whatever it might be. But think about it in a different way. Think about the things, and we've had this conversation before. Think about the things that are truly valuable in your life, Think about the relationship that you have with good friends. Think about the relationship that you have with your kids. Think about the relationship that you have with your spouse. Think about the relationship that you have with your own body. Those things that are challenging often produce the greatest sense of satisfaction and the greatest sense of valuable outcome that we encounter. You see it in lives of people who passionately pursue a business endeavor that they work very hard for. You see it in the lives of individuals who love their spouses even when their spouses are unlovable. Something valuable is created when we are challenged and when we work hard at something in a way that it is not created when it is just given to us. We may look, as individuals who live in northern Minnesota with this Norwegian, Swedish, northern Scandinavia vibe, down on those who make their money the old-fashioned way. They inherit it because they haven't earned it. It was just given to them. And a person who just has something given to them, did they really know what it costs? And I think it's helpful to understand that our experience of life, that suffering, that the difficult things in life serve a purpose to to both enhance and grow our relationship with Jesus Christ. 
that experiencing life as a follower of Jesus Christ, growing in our relationship with Jesus Christ, is the outcome that we should want, and it is the outcome that God desires. The text goes on. This is a marriage made in heaven. Let us rejoice and exalt. And the reference is there. Okay, if you want, you can flip to Matthew, uh, rather Psalm 118, 22, 23, 24 in your own time. Matthew 5, 12, okay? Matthew 5, 12, Jesus talking to his disciples. It's this, it's this uh, rejoice and be glad in the midst of suffering. But you can grab those on your own time. So uh, Psalm 118, 22, 23, 24, Matthew 5, 12, going on with the text. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come. And his bride has made herself ready. This is a marriage made in heaven. You know that idiom, right? The perfect match. The marriage of the lamb and his bride. Everyone gets to wear white. Everyone who is found in Christ it's a sweet dress. Have you always recognized the reality that the bride is always beautiful? The text describes in verse 8, the finest wares. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. There are two realities in these short two verses. The finest wares, the most beautiful garments, an incredible wedding dress. It is both something that is earned and it is something that is a reward. Now, this is something that we as followers of Jesus Christ wrestle with and theologians work on and have worked on for the last couple thousand years. What is salvation? How are we saved? How do we have a relationship with Jesus Christ? How do we go about this thing called life being a follower of Christ? How do we engage in spiritual formation? And here, at the end of all things, you have the author of the book of Revelation reporting that the dress, that the finest wares, are two things at the same time. It is something that is earned, And it is something that is a reward. It is something that is identity, and it is something that is choice. And we can't miss that reality. Without God, without God, without Jesus Christ doing what he did to die for us and giving us the right to be called the sons and daughters, the right to be called the bride, which is another interesting motif that's going on here, we move from the children of God consistent throughout the Bible, to being the bride of Christ. An interesting switch in identity, but we'll get to that later. We have this important notion to acknowledge. Without Jesus Christ giving us what we need, there's no way we ever get there. And in the same breath, it is a reward. A reward for following him. A reward for being in right relationship with him. 
It is both what is given and what is earned. Not everyone gets to this point. But everyone who is in Christ gets to this point. Everyone who has a personal relationship with Jesus Christ and aspires to follow Jesus for all of their days, for all of their breath, gets to this point. Regardless of what's in our past, regardless of how checkered our past might be, we all get to wear white if we're found in Christ. And for me, that's a really cool thing. To know that the God of the universe looks at me, looks at us, irrespective of our past, but it's saying yes. The identity that is conferred is related to the choice that is made. It's saying yes to the Lamb. It's saying yes to this grand and glorious feast. It's saying yes to the invitation. Verses 9 and 10. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited. Now, invited is an intriguing word here because it's the Greek word kaleo, K-A-L-E-O, transliterated into the English. Frequently, okay, frequently this word, okay, is translated chosen. Paul frequently translates the word kaleo as chosen or elect or something like this. And so there is this sense again, this two-sided sense, if you will, the sense of being called, the sense of God saying, no, I want you on my team, and also responding to the invitation. Have you ever gotten a wedding invitation and throw it in the mailbox? I mean, throw it in the garbage. Have you ever wanted to do that? Have you ever thought to yourself, because I've had this thought before, okay, it's far enough away what if I just buy an extra nice gift? And like the money that I would have spent on gas, I'll just put that money towards an extra nice gift and then that'll make up for the bad, okay? This is a wedding you don't want to miss. This is an invitation you don't want to disregard. This is an invitation that you want to accept with everything that you have. Not only because it's going to be a phenomenal meal and a phenomenal feast and an opportunity for all of eternity to be with Jesus Christ. But because in accepting it today, it's not just end-loaded. That for the follower of Jesus Christ, it's not just about the end of all things, but it's a vibrant, life-giving relationship with God today. So the Blums, 75 years, that is a sweet run. Like I said, the first five years were the hardest. He was an electrician. She was a welder. They were slave laborers 
in a German munitions factory in Poland. They are Polish Jews. In 1942, Mr. Blum had been selected to work in this munitions factory, and there was a list of individuals, Polish Jews, who were set up to be taken to Treblinka to be executed to die at the hands of the Nazis. And Mr. Blum did an extraordinary thing. He spotted his girlfriend and said, I want her. And the Nazis at the time said, who is she? And he said, she's my sister. And because Mrs. Blum looked as though she would be a woman who could work, they pulled her out of that line. Reflecting on why he risked his life by approaching the Nazi soldier that day in 1942, Mr. Blum said, I wanted to be with her. Then Mrs. Blum looked adoringly at her unromantic 94-year-old savior and said, they could have killed him right away on the spot. But he loved me, and he wanted to keep me. It's what we're talking about today. Jesus looks into our lives, into our souls, and says, I want you. He rescues us from certain death. He gives us a beautiful wedding garment to wear. And he invites us to follow him with everything that we have. Please pray with me. Father, we come to you today. And the imagery of a wedding is truly an enduring metaphor. Marriage is a gift that you have given to us, a gift that is not to be taken lightly. Perhaps why you're so serious about marriage is because it reflects the relationship that your son has with us, his church. And so I would ask, Father, that for those that are married here today, that you strengthen these marriages. And for those of us here today who are not married because of time or distance or choice, and all of us who are married. May we understand the necessity of saying yes to you, to your Son, to your Spirit. May we understand how critical it is to be found as the bride of Christ. Father, thank you for this time. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.